Hey, this is Shane Valenstein, the pastor at City on a Hill Community Church. I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. I hope that this podcast helps you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at cityonahillmd.org. Enjoy the message. All right, we are in the, the third week of our series called Reclaimed. And so all month long, we've been walking through the book of Ezra. And we've been attempting to learn from this story that happened thousands of years ago, how does it apply to us today? In the first week, we, we learned about the situation that the Israelites were in. They were, the Israelites were in captivity in, in Babylon, which was then defeated by, Babylon was then taken over by the Persians. And, and they, were, they were in captivity, and the king of Persia, his name was King Cyrus, he issued a decree allowing the Israelites to return home to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. So there are still some people who are living who were a part of the, the, the nation of Israel when they were in Jerusalem, but most of the people now were born in captivity, and they're, they're experiencing new life over here in, in Jerusalem. And when, the, when, when King Cyrus issued a decree, some of the Israelites were up to the task. Some, some were ready to go and to, and to help rebuild Jerusalem. And a lot of others were like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to sit here and, and be comfortable in Babylon at this point. Then last week, we talked about the rebuilding of the temple, which was led by a guy named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a part of the new generation. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. Actually, he was born in Babylon. So he, he comes back with the Israelites, and he leads this rebuilding of the temple. But he faces some opposition along the way, and we learn that opportunity welcomes opposition. And he had generational opposition, people from different generations arguing over what the temple should look like, and, and there was some, some disagreement there. And then he also had some, some, uh, some opposition from neighboring countries that were kind of related to him. They were like kind of distant relatives, but if he cooperated with them, then it would have compromised their values as as a nation of God. So we talked about that the last two weeks. You can go check them out on our YouTube page. But today, we're going to pick up where we left off. So the Israelites are back home. They're back in Jerusalem. And they, they were building the temple, as we talked about last week with, with Zerubbabel, but they only had the foundation for a period of time. So they, they celebrated once they had the foundation, and then they kind of ignored it. So it wasn't like fully built. They, did, they, didn't, they didn't finish the goal yet. So they build the foundation, they start it, and God kind of had to wake them up and be like, hey, you've got some more work to do here. Like they, they thought, okay, once we got the foundation, now I'm going to go work on my home. Now, now I'm going to go take care of my stuff. I'm going to focus on this stuff because we started that, but we didn't complete it. I don't know if that's you or not. How many times do you start a project at home and then all of a sudden you're, it's like half done for six months and you're like, oh gosh. I have to, I, maybe there was a hole in your wall, and you patched it up, but you never painted it. And it's just a giant white spot on your wall, and you're like, oh, eventually, eventually I'm going to get that. It's Father's Day. Quit, quit hitting it. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't finish what they started. God had to wake them up. And eventually, the temple is finished. But it took way longer than it should have took. But there's still more work to be done for the Israelites. So nearly 60 years have now passed at this point where we're picking up. They've rebuilt the temple, 60 years go by, and God is now raising up a second group 
of refugees from Babylon to return home. So these are people who have not come home yet. They're still in Babylon, and God is raising up another generation, another group of people to return home and continue to rebuild Jerusalem. And these people are still in Babylon under Persian rule. But King Cyrus, who issued the first decree, is now gone. There's, there's a guy named King Artaxerxes who is now leading the nation of Persia, which is, has residence in Babylon. And there's another young leader back in Babylon who is, a, who is an Israelite named Ezra, which is what the book of Ezra, the person that it's named after. Um, many people believe that Ezra wrote this book, but we don't know that for sure. But that's what, that's what the belief is. So Ezra, he's a priest and a teacher back in Babylon. He, he is respected. And God is appointing him to lead the second wave of people back home. The first wave is led by Zerubbabel and, and some other guys as well. Not, not just him, but he was like the first one that was kind of known. And then all of a sudden, we have, we have Ezra back there. He's getting ready to lead another one. When you think back to successes that you've had in your life, what do you normally attribute it to? Like, like when you do well in something and somebody comes along and they say, hey, you did really well here, and they compliment you on something that you worked hard at, what do you normally attribute that success to? Like a lot of times when we see maybe a celebrity that's, that's being interviewed, there, there always seems to be a question that sounds something like this, right? It's like, hey, Taylor Swift, you just got done recording another Grammy-nominated album. You went on a tour around the world that cost $7,000 to sit in the worst seat, right? Then you finally broke up with another loser boyfriend to inspire your next great album. Oh, I'm getting the Swifties out here. They're going to be very upset. Finally broke up with another boyfriend to inspire another great Grammy-nominated album. The question we all have is, how do you do it? What's your secret? What's your secret, Taylor Swift? Like, that's what, that talent, pure talent. And then Taylor would normally respond with something like this. Well, I never lost sight of who I was, regardless of how many times Kanye West interrupted me at the MTV VMAs back in 2007 or whenever it was. Regardless of how many times John Mayer broke my heart, I never lost sight of who I was, and I stayed true to me, and then that's how I had success, right? Like, that's, that's how a lot of times when we look at celebrities, they, they would answer something along those lines. That's not a direct quote from Taylor Swift, just so you know. But I just assume, yeah, maybe, maybe. I just assume. But that's a pretty normal response that we may have in regards to any sort of success that we experience in our lives. I overcame, I remained true to myself, I trusted in my abilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's pretty standard, pretty, pretty typical, because a lot of us are awful at receiving a compliment. We're very, very bad at it. I, and I'll be honest with you, I never really know how to respond and I know that every, I've talked about this in a sermon before, but every time that I do, then I know what's going to happen after the service today. But I never really know how to respond when you come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you did a great job on your sermon today. And I appreciate you doing that. Like, I really do. But I don't know how to respond. Like, what, what do I say? Like, do I go, it's all for him up there? Like, I don't know the best way to respond to it. And because 
when it comes down to it, it's not, it's not me. Like, I put in work, yes, but it's God speaking through me. And so it is uncomfortable and sometimes strange to me to receive that compliment because it's just strange, right? And we don't know how to accept compliments, especially when you're doing something that is involving God in the process. Maybe you led a small group. Maybe you led a ministry, and somebody comes up to you, and they're being very nice, and they're just saying, you did a great job. Brad, you know, you preached for years. You did a great job of, uh, of doing whatever it is that you did. And then all of a sudden, you're just like, thank you, right, Dave? You know, thank you. thanks, I think, but I don't want to be arrogant and take credit for myself. It's an uncomfortable situation to be in. But if you were to ask a guy like Ezra the same question, his response would be this, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. And actually, he said this in Ezra 7, chapter 7, verse 6, 9, and 28, and then also chapter 8, verses 18, 22, and 31. Six times in two chapters, he said, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. The good hand of the Lord was upon me. He gave all credit back to God. I succeeded because God blessed me, because God gave me the opportunity. It's, it's the right response. It's the way that we should be looking about it is that it doesn't mean that we didn't put in work. It doesn't mean that we didn't put in effort. But when we have success, when we thrive in something, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. The good hand of the Lord was here. Uh, it's weird to, to receive compliments, especially when I know I didn't do anything. And as a lead pastor, that happens sometimes. A lot of people come along and they'll say, man, the kids area looks phenomenal. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. It was all Janine. I, I helped paint a little bit. Okay. I, that doesn't mean that I wasn't doing anything, just so you know. I don't want you to think I was just sitting here, just like, Janine, go to work, and that's why she quit. No, that's not, that's not how that happened, okay? That's not accurate. But I didn't really do it. Like, that was all Janine. When I, 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 a few months ago, I went, and we have uh, this thing called District Assembly, where it's, we're part of the Mid-Atlantic District of the Church of the Nazarene. Brad was just referencing General Assembly. That's the Global Church of the Nazarene. But we get together once a year, and this year they asked me, to speak at it, to tell them the story of this, of the church, of us receiving this building from Countryside. And I got up there and I said, um, I was talking about it, and I said, so if you, if you need a building and you want a building, just do what I did. Nothing. <laughs> Didn't do anything. I just received it. That's all that I did. And so many people have been like, wow, great job. I'm like, thanks, right? <laughs> I, I don't, right? <laughs> so anyways, um, we're not very good at, at receiving compliments. Zerubbabel, he came and he led the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra came back home, and then he's now leading the rebuilding of the people. So like Zerubbabel focused on a structure, a very important structure, the temple, which was the house of God. Now, uh, Ezra, he's now focused on not a building, but people, making sure that the nation of Israel, the Israelites, are healthy spiritually, spiritually speaking. 
This is, this, is not, this is hard because you can't really measure it. You can't really just see the walls going up. But if you're investing in people, it can be challenging. So Ezra, he was a great leader. And I want to look today a little bit at his leadership qualities because the way that he led is so very valuable and important to us today, and we can learn so much from it. First thing that we see with Ezra is this. Ezra was audacious. He was bold. In Ezra 7, 6, it says, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king, talking about King Artaxerxes, had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. So remember, remember who Ezra was, okay? A priest and a scholar. I don't know about you, but I don't really expect like a, a priest or a scholar to approach a mighty king like King Artaxerxes, who is not Ezra's king, right? He, he's a king of Persia. Ezra is an Israelite, but he's living under Persian rule. So I wouldn't expect a, a priest or a scholar to come up and ask permission to take a group of Jewish exiles out of his kingdom and back home to Jerusalem. That's a bold ask. Very bold. See, King Cyrus, when we talked about the first week, he was the one who came along and said, you all can return home because, as we talked about, he was trying to receive benefit from himself, for himself. He, he was hoping, whatever God is real, I'm going to send people back to their nation and hopefully their God blesses me, right? That's not what happened here. Ezra came to King Artaxerxes and is asking permission to return home with more people. That's a bold ask. That's audacious. It's a big ask. And sometimes in life, we miss out on something simply because we're too afraid to ask. We're too scared to ask. We, we don't want to offend. We don't want to embarrass ourselves or, or bring on unwanted attention. The, the juice often isn't worth the squeeze, right? Where, where we come along and we're like... I could really use help in this way. I, I, could, really, I could really use this. I, and we just don't want to go through the embarrassment of actually asking. So we just don't. So we just remain silent. We just never say anything. And then it doesn't move forward. Instead, we are content to just remain where we are because we don't want to be audacious and step out of our comfort zone. We don't like it. And you know who you are, right? You're sitting here right now. It's like, oh, I never, ever, ever want to ask for help with anything because I'm, I'm, too, I'm too wrapped up in myself. And let, let me be clear here, okay? If you are that person, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but if you are that person where you will never ask for help, you are arrogant. Sure did. You're arrogant. Because you think you can do it all on your own. And there is no shame in ever asking for help. No shame. Actually, on the flip side, that's how you are made. To do things together. You are not meant to do everything by yourself. You're not meant to do everything alone. You are made to work with other people 
to help one another, to pick each other up. And you have no problem helping other people, great. That's awesome. You should do that. But if you don't receive help, you're arrogant. You're arrogant. And you're missing out on what God's calling in your life. But not even just help. Sometimes you just need permission. And we're, we're too scared to ask for permission to do something. We're too scared to come forward and say, hey, can I do this? Because we don't know what the response is going to be. And I get it. I, I feel that way a lot of times too. But it, if we never ask for help, if we never are bold enough to just simply ask for whatever it is, doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get it. Let me be clear, okay? Doesn't mean that just because you ask, now you are entitled. There's a difference there. But, but when you come along and you know that you need to ask for something and you just won't do it because it's just uncomfortable, you're missing out on maybe what God is trying to provide. One of the lessons that my mentor, Pastor Kevin, taught me was this. If you need something, ask. It's that simple. And as a pastor, too, if you need something, ask. There have been times where I've, where I've stood up in front of you all and said, hey, we need X amount of dollars for this. It's not in our budget. I don't know where it's going to come from, but, but we, we need to do this. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to ask. And God always provides. Always provides. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. But if you need something, ask for it. And not even just with people, right? Not even just asking people for it, but also asking God. Say, God, I need a bold spirit. Can you help? God, provide a boldness in me so that I can do what you're calling me to do. God, I want to do this, but I don't have the resources to do it. God, I need help. I am proclaiming and I am asking, will you provide? I love what it says in the Bible about wisdom. It says, if you want wisdom, you know what you need to do? Ask. Just ask. If you're, if you're in the middle of making a decision and you're wrestling with something and you're like, I don't have clear discernment, ask. And then listen. Sometimes we ask and then we don't stop talking, right? Ask and then listen. That's what it looks like. But with, with Pastor Kevin, he would say, you need volunteers for kids' ministry? Ask. You, you, you need, you need uh, volunteers for, for youth ministry? Ask. You need volunteers to go on, on a mission trip? Ask. You need money for a mission trip? Ask. You need a building for your church? Ask, right? When you ask, who knows? But don't be so arrogant and so wrapped up in ourselves that we refuse to even be bold enough or audacious enough to ask. Trust God to provide everything you need to do for, for what he is calling you to do. What, whatever he's calling you to do. If he's calling you to be a pastor, he's going to provide. If he's calling you to, to share your faith at work, he's going to provide. If he's calling you to, to move to a different part of the country, he's going to provide. Whatever it looks like, he always provides everything you need to do what he is calling you to do. And if you are audacious and the answer is still no, then you know that it isn't the right direction. You know it isn't the right time. doesn't mean forever. It may mean forever. It may not. But ask. Be bold. Ezra 
stepped up, went to the king and said, hey, can I bring all these people back to Jerusalem? What does it say? It gave him every, he gave him everything he asked for. Sometimes you're amazed about the walls that are broken down simply by being bold enough to speak it into existence. It changes the game. This is what it's, then the next thing that we learned about Ezra, about him being a good leader, this is what Ezra had, okay? He had exceptional ability. He was very talented, but it was because of his preparation. Ezra was a great leader, but he wasn't a great leader overnight. He wasn't a great leader just by having the natural ability to do it. There, there is natural talent and ability there. But Ezra, it says in verse 10, devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees in law, and, and laws in Israel. See, Ezra was a scribe who studied the word. He was a, and, and he was a disciple who practiced the word. But then beyond that, he was also a householder who shared the word. So he studied, he practiced, and he shared. That was the way he went about his ministry. That was the way he went about his life. And that is a leader worth following. Somebody who puts in the effort, able to lead others because he prepared himself to do so. If you want to lead others and you're not preparing yourself to lead others, you're not going to be a good leader. If you're not taking care of you, if you're not at home making sure that you're in the Word, if you're not at home taking care of what you need to take care of, you are not going to lead well. And sometimes we want that opportunity to, to lead or be in charge, but we don't want to put in the work. It takes work and lots of it. But it's good work. It's not, it's not bad. See, we have to remember something about Ezra. He was born in captivity in Babylon, right? So, since he was born in captivity in Babylon and he wasn't born in Jerusalem, for him to be a scribe who studied the word is pretty impressive. Right? He's, he's not home. Now, surely some, some people from the previous generation brought the law of Moses with them, but it was not a part of the culture that he was living in. It's not, it's not the way most people were living. They're under Babylonian rule and then Persian rule. So for him to be a scholar that had studied the word like he studied it, meant that he had to go above and beyond. He wasn't given this opportunity just like in day-to-day -day life, just in culture. He had to work at it. He had to be intentional about it. He had to focus on it because it wasn't the thing to do in that particular culture. So for him to be so skilled in the word, it speaks volumes about the effort that he put forth. Want to lead? Be audacious. But more than that, be prepared. Be, be ready. Work at it. Put in the time. It's worth it, but it is work. And it's not always easy. And then the last thing that we see about that's crucial for being a quality leader is this. Ezra recognized sin for sin. So Ezra comes home, right? King Artaxerxes allows him to bring, bring people home. They come home. He's talking to the people. He's, he's investing in the lives of the Israelites. They're finished building the temple at this point. And now he's just investing in, in, in the Israelites. 
But eventually, what he discovers is that many of the Israelites who returned home, they've now engaged in intermarriage with the neighboring nations and also engaged in their pagan practices. So the Israelites who had come home, remember last week we talked about the, the Samaritans who came and some other neighboring nations that came wanted to help? They're now intermingling with them. Exactly what Zerubbabel was trying to stop. They're, they're having relationships. They're getting married to one another. And it may sound like, in our world today, it sounds a little weird, right? Like, well, so what? You can't marry somebody who's different than you? Like, absolutely you can. But the, the, the difference here is that they weren't just marrying somebody from a different way of life. They were marrying the other people and then practicing their pagan religions. And it was influencing their culture. It was influencing and basically pushing God out, in other words. Not good. So Ezra comes home and he sees this. And, <laughs> excuse me, and he recognizes sin for sin. It says in Ezra 9, verse 1, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have, no, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. This is a big problem. But it became acceptable among the culture. It became acceptable behavior for the people there. And I feel like every week we kind of talk about this a little bit. This, is, this has kind of been one of the themes of Ezra. It's that culture doesn't determine morality. Scripture does. And many people were doing this, right? Many people were doing this. This, this was normal amongst the Israelites. This was something where, where they're looking around, and when you do something for so long, or when something is a part of the culture for a long time, all of a sudden, we can become numb to it. We can, we can become numb to it. I remember the first time I heard a curse word when I was a kid. I'm like appalled right? I also remember the first time my brother said a curse word because he's a worse pastor than I am. <laughs> Amen, right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Um, but I remember being at home as a kid and he said a curse word and I was like, oh my gosh, Eric, how could you, right? Just appalled. And now, he says them all the time. I'm just kidding. that no, he does <laughs> But now, like, when, when you hear certain words, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. It's just, like, normal, right? Because you become numb to it over time. And this, uh, this isn't meant to be in a conversation about what you can or can't say. But the point is, at one time, I thought and I felt, this is really bad. And then you get to a point where you're just like, oh, this is just normal. Because that's the way sin works in our lives. Over time, it becomes normal. Over time, it becomes like, yeah, oh, that's just the way that we are. That's just our culture. That's just how we operate. And because everybody's doing it and because everybody's accepting of it, I guess that it's just normal. And, and God, he, he, he sees that and he recognizes that, right? So surely, surely he would see that and be like, oh, yeah, that's just culture changed, and now, even though this was wrong maybe a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, whatever, now he knows it's 2023, right? His standards have changed, right? And 
we go down this slippery slope. And sometimes it takes a bold, audacious, prepared person to come in and say, no, this is not right. This is not the way that God has called his followers. That's important, okay? This is not the way he has called Christians to live. Because we always have to recognize that we as the church are living by the standard of the Bible and living by the standard of Jesus Christ. And those outside of the church who don't believe the Bible to be the Word of God, we cannot expect them to live by the same standards. Because our reasoning is the Word of God, which we believe is divinely inspired. That is a light to our feet. That gives us everything that we need to live this life. That's what I believe. That's what this church believes about the Bible. But if you're talking to a person who doesn't hold that same belief and doesn't believe the Bible to be an inspired word, a divinely inspired word, then we can't justify living a certain way to somebody who doesn't believe in our source. You follow me? So it's important, it's important that we recognize we are talking about the way God has called followers of his to live. If you don't claim to know Jesus, I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong in your life. Unless you ask. If you ask, I'd be happy to tell you, right? Because I also believe that the way God calls us to live is not because God is a tyrant. Rather, because I believe it is the most practical, best way to live this life. So I could take lessons out of the Bible and not use God to justify it to a person who doesn't believe in God because I still believe it's the best way to live your life regardless of whether or not you know Jesus. I believe that. I hope you believe that. That's, that's the living, breathing Word of God that we're talking about. That can be piercing to every single heart. But if you go about it of like, well, God said to a person who doesn't believe God is real, it's not going to fly. We've got to understand that. But when it comes to the church, when it comes to our home, we've got to recognize sin for sin. I've had people come to me before and say, hey, would, would you speak on this particular issue that's happening in our schools or that's happening in our country in regards to the politics or that's happening in wherever? Sometimes people even come to me and they'll say, hey, can you tell my husband or my wife that what they're doing is wrong? And I'm like, <laughs> nope, nope. If they want to talk to me, I'll talk to them, but I'm not. Yeah, anyways, um, so people will come and they, they'll ask me that sometimes. Can you speak from the pulpit about this issue? And my response is always this. If it's in the Bible, absolutely. If it's not, nope. Because my job is not to preach my opinion or your opinion. My job is to preach God's opinion. And sometimes people will say, well, what are your political beliefs? I'm like, I have them, but I'm not going to share them from the pulpit because the pulpit is not a political platform. The pulpit is a holy, sacred place where we go dive deeper into the Word of God. That's what it is. 
So anything in regards to outside of the church, people say, well, isn't, isn't your heart breaking about what's happening in this particular area? And I may say, yeah, sure, but I'm not in charge of that area. That's not my job. Now, if something's happening inside our church, then it's my job. Sometimes people even say, what about what's happening at this church? I'm like, I'm not the pastor at that church. I have no control over that. I don't have relationships with those people. You know who I do have relationships with? You. We have to recognize sin for sin within our context in a loving way, in a healthy way, and in an appropriate way. So I'm not going to shy away from saying that something is wrong if I know that the Scripture says that it's wrong. And if it upsets you, that's okay. Don't get mad at me. You can take it up with him if you want. It's not going to end well, but you can do that. It's not going to change it, but you can do that. When it comes down to it, be bold, be prepared, and call a spade a spade. Sometimes we know that something is wrong in our lives or in the life of our family or friends that we care about, that we're close with. We know that it's wrong, but we just don't want to make people uncomfortable. Or I don't want to face my own garbage in my life, so I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just not going to say anything. I know that what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm just going to keep going down this road because it's what I know, it's what I do. I'm not perfect, right? That's, what, that's always our excuse. I'm not perfect, so I'm just going to keep engaging in something that I know God is telling me to stop engaging in. It makes zero sense. Because if you, if you truly believed in the God that you're talking about, that you're following, then you would be inspired and excited to follow in the ways that he has called you to live. Because he's the creator of the universe and the creator of you. And the example of love Sacrificial love, and he's worth everything. He's worth following. He's worth giving up other things that are holding you back from knowing him more. And chances are, you know what those things are in your life already. You don't need me to tell you. Chances are. So get serious about it. Be bold. Study the word. And recognize sin for sin. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we, as we close. And only, only you truly, truly know the things that are going on in your life. You're the only one. You know what's happening in your life. You know the things you need to work on in your life. Praise God that there's grace. But also... Don't abuse grace, accept grace. Abusing grace looks like, oh, I have this grace, so I'm just going to do whatever I want all the time. I'm just going to live the way that I want to live because God provided grace for me in my life so that I'm covered. Accepting grace is saying because of the grace that God has provided, I am inspired to live a different way, to reflect the love that he has provided so that I could accept grace through his son Jesus but it's your choice. I feel like I say that every single week. All of this is your choice.
But when we look at Ezra, when we look at the Israelites, and when we look at how he raised the Israelites up, when we look at that, we can see, we can see that he was intentional. It's a game changer. So get serious about your faith. Get serious about your community of faith. Start going in the direction that God's called you to go in. Amen? Let's stand and let's sing.